Everything's going to chat GBT, right? Maybe even our soul. <laughs> I think in the long run, though, uh, people going back to trades, they'll actually probably be happier and healthier than the on, you know, computer for livelihood lifestyle. I mean, I that's how I make a living. And uh, maybe the reason why it's not a not too soul crushing is because it's mostly in the form of con conversations with people. But even me, like on a heavy work day, it's hard for me to like put in more than four hours uh, at the screen, you know, and sometimes you got to, I'm not complaining. It's like the best job I could ever have, but you know, spending all day researching, putting together a PowerPoint and then being in uh four plus hours of, content as well late into the night that was my day yesterday it was an awesome day don't get me wrong but you do got to ground that out and get some sun you know because creating stuff digitally it has a lot of cool perks and advantages like no matter how much you create it still all fits like in this thing tiny you know but uh the value of trans taking an idea from up up in the ethers and bringing it into and putting it into a physical body as a craft of some kind that has a ton of value because the, the, the energy that is your attention, your spiritual currency, your attention and intention that you put into that and the kinetic energy of whatever it is you're working on, all of that is retained in the vessel of what it is that you uh, put it into the body that you built for the idea as Walter Russell would say. So the trade's coming back. I think that's good for everybody. I, it's kind of, it's sad. Like when I look at myself, how few things that I know how to fix around my house. And you got to call your dad for stuff. And you know, the dads, the dads are sometimes busier. They, they won't be here forever. We need to translate that information to the, the future. I think of the whole, you know, there's so much about like electricity the wiring in a house, things like that, that the more of our knowledge is outsourced to other people or to technology, the more risky some of the things that we're doing become, you know what I mean? Like we're following best practices here. Are we going to just start getting uh, electrocuted by poorly done installations? You got to wonder. We got to go back to the old ways in some ways, and we got to embrace the new way in other ways too. And I think the culture right now is just trying to figure out what that is, you know, what ways of the old world should we bring into the new and what ways are we currently doing now, which we need to dispose of. That's what we're all trying to figure out. I don't know if you're on Twitter at all or X or whatever these things are called anymore, but man, one, one step into those interfaces, it's just pure, it's like my way versus your way, your way versus my way, left versus right. And we're stepping into a time where these barriers and walls, they're getting more and more solidified for some people, but for some people as well, they're disintegrating. We're just seeing the truth of it all kind of witnessing the split in real time between ourselves and the collective world. It's a pretty strange time to live in. Yeah, may you live in strange times, the old Chinese curse. 
or interesting times, I think it was. And I don't go into the trenches of Twitter and something inside of me just refuses to call it X. Like, that's a letter. That's not a name of a company. Sorry. Um, but the mainstream social media platforms obviously designed for breeding and accelerating conflict. That seems to be the obvious goal. And it makes sense because it's like a, that's how you that's like how a battery works. You got to have these polarities playing off of each other. And that's essentially what the mainstream socials are. They are resource extraction platforms, you know, mostly attention extraction and then commodifying that attention in the form of advertisements and data that can be, you know, sell ads and sell data. That's what it's all about. I mean, they're not even, they don't even conceal that that's the business model behind it. So why feed it? You know, I don't, I prefer, I really like telegram. Uh, I'll, I'll use Instagram as well, just to promote my stuff. And, you know, I kind of have, I have ambitions to have somebody else run a TikTok for me and put clips of my show on there. I don't really want to like actually use TikTok, but telegram is at, it's like the old internet where it's just literally based on communicating. It reminds me of AOL instant messenger back in those days. You know, oh, yeah. when the internet was pure and innocent and we were in junior high, good times. The, the good old days, really before the world started to turn to something else. When did you notice that the world was changing something different? Oh, it's always changing into something different, ain't it? Well, there was a yeah. tangible switch, wasn't there? It just sort of felt like it. Like 2013, something like that. Something I happened. remember December in 2012 when the Mayan yeah. prophecy yeah. was said to uh, the old world would end or the world would end. And uh, sometime around, I think it was like the, the big day, like, you know, the big special day or around abouts. I, uh, I just had a profound mushroom trip. I was in my early 20s. And then I smoked a joint with my dad. And it was the first time I felt like I, I felt like I was a man at that point. You know, he saw me as grown up because he came down from his lofty authority position and accepted my right to decide to do something like that for myself and join me with it instead of, you know, me being in trouble. Like I assume I would have been at any time before that. And of course now that's not even a big deal. It's legal everywhere, including where I live. But for me at that time, that was the world changed. That's when I became a man, smoked a joint with my dad. <laughs> um, but yeah, like in terms of the question, it's, it's always changing. There's this immaculate sky clock spiral that goes on where no matter how cyclical time is, there's always something slightly new and novel about the overall frequency field that we're in and the position of all the different variables, slight tweak. It's like there's enough variables in the system that it never quite fully repeats, at least not, you know, in a way that we could ever calculate the frequency of the repeat. You know, there's this concept in esoteric schools of the, the year of our Lord. And a lot of the names of the God throughout the various systems of the mythology actually encode the idea of the word of the year in it. Like an example would be Janus. It's got Annus in it, which is the Latin word for year. 
or like uh, Anna Maria. <laughs> it's, I think the mother of, of Mary was Anna. That's the name for the year, you know, annual, right? And so there's this uh, idea of the, the year of our Lord, the Catholics might say. And they call it like the acceptable, acceptable year of our Lord as if it has something to do with the calendar and making sure Easter is on the right time and we get Jesus' birthday on the right day. But I kind of think that when I, when I pay enough attention and I track things properly, which I definitely don't always do, but I do notice patterns, especially as I've gotten a bit older and had some more experience where the same type of thing happens around the same day in a cyclical fashion. Like the first time I really noticed it is kind of morbid, but my, uh, my ex had three, three years in a row where somebody very, very close to her, like in her family or a close personal friend died on the same day in October, three years in a row. And that was when I started, you know, really looking around like, is this thing just a, a big circle that just repeats itself endlessly? And I think there might be some truth to that. And the year of our Lord concept, you know, looking at the idea of astrology, something I talk about occasionally is how the, the mythos or astrotheology is that the father, the, you know, the top G, the big God, the uh, potter, which is the same word as pattern, is the entire sky. So a lot, uh, another truth is that many of the sky fathers, sky gods, their name actually is a synonym for the word for sky. Like the father of Saturn is Oronos, which is the Greek word for sky. That's where we get the name of the, the planet Uranus, Oranos. So I think that the, the sky is like the all in a way. It's the, it's the outer boundary of our perception, but it's also what we can see the most of all at once. So if you are looking up just at the sky, you can basically see the entire thing. You know, your field of vision can be only the sky. <laughs> You know what I mean? And you you can't actually see everything that's in the heavens at once. Of course, some of it goes into the underworld and some of it goes in, you know, the underworld as in it goes below the horizon at different points. But that's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like the conscious and the unconscious. Whatever is currently visible in the sky is what's happening in human consciousness in that moment. And so the year of our Lord, you know, to get back to that concept, it's like, as the sky clock is turning and the story or the psychodrama of God's imagination, as it is allegorized in all the constellations and stars and planets that have names and, and attributes related to mythological tales, that if we were to fully comprehend the mystery of the allegories in the heavens and pay enough attention in our life to see how our own life is an exact one-to-one -one match of the allegory of what goes on in the heavens throughout the course of the year. We might be able to gain enough awareness of the pattern that is God's psyche as it is revealed to us in the sky, the outermost limit, the highest, most total point of, 
of our perception that we could, uh, you know, we could conceive that by knowing the pattern that's going on in the sky and how it and what it means based on what happens down here as a reflection of it, that that constitutes knowing the mind of God in its entirety. So the year of our Lord is like understanding the the cyclical nature of God's expression into the creation. You know, I, this is a very abstract concept. I might not be doing it <laughs> the justice of how it all fits together in my head, but you kind of see where I'm going with this, that like, if we can get the whole, this happens on this day, this happens within this constellation, you know, that we are really, it's the, it's the psychodrama of the, the creation. It's the, it's the intent and will of that, which set it all in motion. There's only a way we can hack the matrix and give it a pattern and give everyone a little calendar update. Here's what's going to happen today. Here's how the matrix wants to attack, or maybe it wants to make something beautiful. What is the matrix? What is reality? Well, matrix means womb. So the only way that I could ever accept that I'm in a matrix is if I'm in a womb right now being incubated to be born into my next life at the point that this dream ends upon the death of this particular character. In which case I can get behind the idea that I'm in a matrix as a womb. I don't think I'm in a computer simulation. I don't think that it's uh, attacking me, but I do think that the, you know, the notion of, of God or the three the three-part being requires us to understand that whatever creates this place, whatever the um, the deepest, most primary consciousness that exists, the root or the trunk of the tree that we are leaves and branches upon, uh, it's responsible for all that we experience as good and all that we experience as evil. So, you know, it's coming from the same place and it's something, and the evil you have to consider, or I consider as something that's just there to strengthen us so that, you know, just like a tomato plant won't grow right if it doesn't have some wind on it to test it. We need, we need the trials too. So, you know, I don't think though that we're in a matrix. I don't think that there's, that this place is designed to our detriment. Uh, you know, those kind of perspectives are very prevalent, especially in the, under the label of Gnosticism. And, you know, that just gets conflated with simulation theory or inside a computer program, all that. It's fine if people believe that, but I see it as, you know, if I were to take that on as a belief, it would, I would feel disempowered by it. And uh, ultimately I'd feel victimized by that. And at the end of the day, we get to decide who we want to be. And so I can't, I just can't vibe with a, a limited, a limiting belief, like, um, at the mercy of, of some lines of code or uh, in an evil demiurge that is imprisoning me or whatever version of it that people might take on. Just curious, uh, what about that would make you feel like victimized or disempowering? Well, the way it's sold, you know, the way it's sold is like your spark of the divine and your encased in the prison of matter of your body 
the reality is created by the the lesser god and so all of nature is actually the expression of the insane you know abortion of sophia the goddess of wisdom <laughs> this is how it's sold in the like truth or circles or you know yeah. aeon bite gnosticism and that to me i don't see how you, how that is anything but victimization as a perspective that okay so what i am at my core is a fragment of the true God, but somehow that God who is the omnipotent and the absolute is tricked by a lesser and deformed sub God. And that that trick was so well done that it, that the real God can't even save itself from the trick of this matrix as it's portrayed, you know, and that the whole thing is just a, a factory to inst instigate negative emotions that then the, some invisible beings are going to feed on. Uh, they call it the louche farm. Louche, or, yeah. You know, the archons are feeding on it. Um, so what about that is anything but being a victim, you know, because there's nothing you can do about it. You are, <laughs> you're accepting a, a very reduced potential and the, it, you're limiting even you know, the idea of uh, the supreme or the absolute being <laughs> to me, that's the the ultimate like checkmate. That's so simple, but rarely asked is like, so if uh, the Demiurge did all this and it's like an evil thing, why doesn't the, the real God just fix it? Wouldn't the real God be able to do that since the real God can do anything, presumably being that it's the you know, the ultimate supreme being with all creative omnipotence and omniscience. So, you know, the whole thing falls apart right there. It doesn't, the, the philosophy is broken. And people ignore that though. And they still just want to keep the, the perspective of like, they're doing it to me. The reason my life isn't the way that I want it is because I never had a chance because, uh, you know, this place is evil inherently. And yeah, that doesn't work for me. So I, I speak against that as much as I get the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with that. I don't think that's what's happening. I don't think there's some sort of evil controlling this. If what people would, I guess, if they do think it's some sort of matrix simulation and whatever negative aliens are looshing our energy to keep. So like, okay. So it. just to be clear though, negative Negative intention exists, evil behavior exists, energy harvesting exists, but I'm just saying that that's not the point of this place and it's not the ultimate truth of this place. That's all I'm saying. I mean, you know, anything's possible infinite, on the infinite spectrum of like behavior and, and identities people can take on. So uh, there, there's definitely like we just talked about it with Twitter. Twitter is literally like a loose factory. It absolutely is. And oh, you'll yeah. notice I, too that people build the reality that they believe in. So yeah. when it comes to the dark occultists that run most of the globalist system, if you will, they actually are typically the ones that are, you know, going to secret society meetings of some kind or or whatever type of initiations that we don't we're not privy to, the ones that are extensions of the priesthood that uh has done a lot of manipulating of humanity and treating humanity like cattle for many generations. 
they tend to look at reality the way that I just described. Like, you know, the whole, <laughs> what I now call pop culture Gnosticism. And so they build systems that reflect their, their, everybody does this. We build things that reflect our deepest held beliefs about reality. So when you look at Twitter, for example, it is exactly that. It's like, uh, it's a big, it is a big loose factory. It's, but it's not the ultimate truth of existence. There's a reality that it's a simulation within, you know? So, I mean, there can be like, we can build practically anything we want. Humans have are omnificent, a word that means possessing all creative power because we're the image of the creator. And so we ha we share in that omnificent capability, which means, you know, in subsystems, anything goes, anything could be built, <laughs> including uh, a type of weird, you know, Gnostic worldview where they make chat GPT, the demiurge. And it's the, you know what I mean? Like they're actually doing that. It uh, it's a thing, but it's not the it's not the highest truth. It's not the ultimate reality. Has anybody even has anyone actually asked Chat GPT if it's the demiurge? I'd like to know. Um, I don't know. Currently, it's just all algorithms. You know, yeah. just like you said, predetermined responses that input information, turn it into components, swap things around, and try to sound intelligent like 90% of most human beings. This world's crazy. And uh, it will get more and more crazy. And I think these meta-religions will continue to prop up. Some of them will be helpful, and some of them will just be spewing a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. I mean, I really, I got in trouble in a way, like last year, probably around this time even, for speaking about this very topic. So I was kind of in with the, with the cool kids that talk about Gnosticism and, you know, they're out to get us, the invisible Draco reptilians. They're behind the screen watching you right now, waiting for you to slowly evolve and catch you at the right moment. And I was uh, speaking out against that kind of stuff. Primarily It's their fault that you can't stop watching porn and <laughs> they're yeah, eating your energy, you know, every time you bleh. Yeah, it's a uh, it's an excuse for it's an excuse for being out of control yourself. Like most of the people that hold this belief. Sorry, I, I want you to continue your story though. Oh, that was basically it. You know, I was trying to say that, you know, point out how it doesn't really make sense, and wouldn't you be beyond that, or what does it mean to think that you're inferior to that? You know, it's not really an empowering message, and you know, I just got attacked for it, predominantly by females because they're very interested in the whole narrative of how there's always something out to get you predominantly in the new age community. And, um, it's just a crazy, crazy world. That whole thing. I can't imagine being in that trap, but. Well, women are more geared to a perspective like that, especially, uh, you know, because the the female has this biological imperative of being protected by a male, which in a way is like a deference of authority to an external. And so I, one thing I've noticed with uh, people who have this type of worldview that we're talking about is they always externalize their authority to something. And there's a psychological 
truth of like, if you are, uh, if you are a slave to somebody, then you want to be a master to somebody else. Like every master of slaves is a slave to something above it. And the only way to get out of that sort of hierarchical death loop is to be in jurisdiction only under the highest power, which is your higher self or the source or God or however you might consider that. But yeah, it's a, like, it's a feminine in a yin and yang sense. It's a feminine perspective to be enslaved by something outside of yourself. And it's, there's nothing like in, in nature wrong with these hierarchies in the sense that like, you know, the man protects his, his uh, woman and his children, the woman protects and has authority over the children. And the, uh, the man is under the authority of God. You know, that's like a very natural hierarchy that can exist in in a family unit. But a lot of that is broken down. And so, you know, a lot of men are actually afraid to take any kind of position of authority in their relationships with women or women are not, uh, you know, have been kind of conditioned away from any kind of, any kind of in intimacy in a, with just one person that is close enough where that type of thing could just naturally arise. And yeah, yeah. We've been told like, oh, you're a sexist. If you talk like, like I'm talking, but the truth is deep down the women want, you know, women actually want to be able to defer to a protector that can tell them, no, that's not good for you. You know, I have your best interests in mind. And that doesn't, you know, obviously that doesn't mean it would be good for a man to abuse or be tyrannical to a woman. That wouldn't be good. Of course. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that this should be like, I, you know, it's only like the very, uh, it's only the very like weak man that tries to control everything that their woman does. It's not about that at all. It's about in the time where it matters, you have the, the fortitude to put your foot down and be like, that's not happening. Even if I have to tell you, no, that's not going to happen because I know that wouldn't be good for you. And then that's, that's what, you know, that, that if we could, if that was brought back into people's relationships, the relationships would be, there would be a lot more spark there because there's a, it's, you know, the natural hierarchy would be uh, established and restored again. And there's probably a lot more we could say about that that would to, to flesh out the idea. And I know there's also people that just cringe at the very thought of any kind of like <laughs> male, female dynamics that aren't uh, reversed so that the man is the one actually submitting to the woman. Um, but, you know, that's that's how I see it. And my own experience in life has proven it. Uh, very, very completely. Yeah, we're in this time where everything is confusing and we're being brought back to what is the way things should be. And again, some of us, it's very clear and for others, it's not. So what do you think about waking up the, the sheeple? Is that a concept that is interesting, something we should be dedicating our time to, or should we just be finding people that are already on the wavelength frequency and just kind of get it already. It's, it's a mystery. You know, what's the, what's the grace of, what's the grace of God that gives somebody the moment of the wake up anyway? 
it's nebulous and it's different. It's subjective from person to person. Ultimately, I don't think that there's any, I don't think that there's any fruit in putting like in your mind, my holding the, uh, the belief or the conviction that it's my job to wake up the sheeple. You know, it's the type of thing where when you really start to get into the fundamentals of how belief shapes your external reality, your beliefs and expectations about yourself and about life absolutely influence and condition what you experience in life, then you're you're starting from a broken, think of it like in the programmer sense, you know, if you have a broken chain of logic in your program, then you're not going to get the result you want. So the logic of I, these people are asleep and I have to wake them up is exactly the type of code that would come back null and void because in the code itself, you're making an assertion that they are asleep. <laughs> so there's, you know, you're, you're like, that's the very condition that you don't want them to be in. Uh, so the better, I think the better perspective is to know that even the most sheeple person out there, look at them like, okay, I know some stuff about life that they don't know, or I accept some things as true that they don't accept as true, but they know some stuff about life I don't know. And they've got some truths that I don't know. So maybe it's more of an exchange than me waking them up. Maybe there's stuff that they can wake me up to. But even beyond all that, the thing that has the best positive influence on the world is even beyond like trying to seek out others that think the same way as you. It's actually, I think, more effective to just do what is the most full body, 100% hell yes to you that resonates as fun and interesting. You know, what could you do? What could you do all day and not feel tired at the end, actually feel energized after it? even though you put in all kinds of attention and effort and energy into it. And that type of stuff, it, the people that you meet through pursuing what's actually interesting and fun to you are the people that, you know, you're going to actually want to spend time with and be around, especially when it comes to relationships with the opposite sex. Do you want to meet them? You know, do you want to meet the mother of your future children at the, at the bar, like a bar floozy, or do you want to, meet them because they just happened to be interested in what it was that you were doing that you were interested in and you converged in that place. You know what I mean? So I think that you'll meet the people that you're meant to, that are best for you. If you do what's best for you, even if that's something that requires you to be a bit solitary for a while, so be it, they, they will show up. Uh, and what does the most influence on friends, family that you want to maybe change their, you, you would like to see them change their minds about things that would make them healthier and uh, happier is to make sure that you're doing those changes yourself, you know, cause a lot of the, like how many, how many of us have been like, you know, talking to a friend and they're like, they're smoking a cigarette. They got a beer in their hand and they're like, you know, they're like 40 pounds overweight and they're like, the government's poisoning the water. The poison in the air with the chemtrails. <laughs> you know, he's like, all right, dude. <laughs> and he might be right about that stuff, but 
you know, if you want the others to change, then do as many of the changes that you can do. And when others see you having a really great life, really healthy, all kinds of like energetic sparkliness coming off of you, vitality, charisma, all the things that come from being in a, in a flow state as much as you can be. That's when they're going to come to you and ask you questions. And that's what I, what I like about podcasting is uh, I get to feel like I'm waking up people in a way, but I don't have to go out of my way to put what I'm doing in front of anybody. I just put it into this container, which is what you guys are doing. And then when people are ready or curious that know you, they can go, they can go find out themselves. You know, it's especially helpful because when you get into the position of being maybe known for having some, having some data on the, on conspiracies or, or knowing a thing or two about a thing or two with religions or spirituality or whatever, like I'm, you know, the things that I talk about on my show instead of having to rehash the conversation with every person that comes to me, I could actually just point them to a video and be like, well, here's where I actually researched this and prepare to talk on it. And there's the whole thing rather than me having to redo the whole, the conversation in this one-on-one -on -one without any uh, preparation and maybe not getting the point across so well. So I guess what I mean is, yeah, just do what for you would mean you're crushing and what would make you the healthiest you can be happiest you could be and then naturally people are gonna when they themselves are ready they're the, ex the external world is the reflection of your inner world so if your inner world is willing to change in a positive way and to do what's best for yourself then your outer world is going to begin populating with people who are willing to change and willing to do better for themselves and maybe some of the ones that are closest to you in your orbit like I'm thinking like parents, siblings, old, old friends, they might not be, they might be the slowest to change, but when you think about it, your relationship to those people goes the farthest back and has its origin points in the same place as your deepest conditioning is at. So, you know, to me, it makes perfect sense that those people close to you might be the ones that are the slowest and hardest to change and require the most consistency on your end of getting better to move the needle for them. So don't get, you know, hopeless about wanting to see mom or dad or brother or sister or old high school friends kind of start to get it or get healthier or get better psychologically. Just look at it like they are your they are your heads up display in your life of how well you're doing getting yourself better. And you know, maybe in some ways if you've been dishonest with yourself about your uh, progress overly inflated your ego about how good of a job you think you're doing or how special you are. Um, they're going to reflect back to you in, uh, you know, continuing to be in a maybe difficult or, or sick or seemingly broken state. But if you see them starting to get better, you know, starting to make positive, healthy changes, you must be doing something right. So I think that they're like, that's what they're there for. They're, you know, they're like your personal, they're like your personal planets in the, in astrology sense, you know, they're like your, your gauge of, of your own inner world, the, uh, the people you've known the longest that you're closest to. It reminds me of a, 
kind of a dream I had where people actually were planets. They had faces on these balls and these balls were, had these wires connected to me and they were dragging me through this tunnel stargate system. And I remember just being pulled along like, whoa, you know, looking up and I seen this guy that I knew my whole life just sitting there with his face, like almost shaped like a moon, just looking at me and almost like, you're going to be all right. And they pulled me to this like Stargate display room with the configurator and started plugging all the stuff, fixing my brain. And it was like the craziest, most HD hyper real moment I've ever had in my life. And I woke up and it made me think about those people in a much different way, similar to the context you just brought about. Like people really are reflections of, of you and the state of how you interact with them also changes how they're going to interact with you, but also interact with themselves. Very interesting. Yeah. Like, when you think about it, when you meet somebody, it has a lot to do, like it has a lot of similarity to who you are at the time when you met them. You know what I mean? So, uh, that, I think that can be also why, like sometimes a, a new relationship, for example, romantically can seem all perfect. Everything's great. Everything's 100% excellent because you're meeting each other at your current most, you know, fully evolved state, best self. But as that relationship deepens and they start coming more and more into your inner world, uh, maybe meeting some of your cast of characters, like, you know, you introduce them to your family, the friction might start to build up based on what's unhealed within you and that unhealed state coming out in them but the you know conscious relationships you can work through that and it actually becomes a mirror that helps you find where the unhealed stuff is or the less than optimal psychological configurations are at but that dream that sounds awesome isn't it amazing how you know you you said hd but like sometimes in those state those states uh those visionary moments it's like the frame rate is really low in our meat suit experience of reality. And so, like those visionary or dream states that you're talking about, sometimes the frame rate is so smooth. It's like, this is like a million frames per second right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like freaky. It's like seeing one of those TVs at, a, at like Sam's Club or, or a big department store, one of the most brand new super HD, ultra HD 4K, like, you know, 300 FPS TVs. And you're like, how is this more realistic than real life? And I think it speaks to, I think it speaks to the fact that the body is kind of like a sort of hardware that uh, our, our sensory experience, there's a sensory capacity to who and what we are that is psychic, that is pr the psychic sensory level is primary or before foundational to the physical sensory experience so whenever you strip the physical part away because you're just purely in the, the mental psychic realm then it things actually are clearer in all in all sense all senses including like symbolically like for you in that dream the symbolism of who the people in your life really were in relation to you was much more clear than it might come across symbolically in your day-to-day -day mundane 
life. Reality, in a way, is a place designed for you to grow. It's a place that you're, it's very, like, it just makes sense that that's the entire point that we're here, is to grow. It's almost like no other thing to do. And however variation we all decide to lay out our curriculum is dependent upon us. You know, it's like the narcissism thing. If you need a, a, a punishing sky daddy to kick you in the ass to get you to do the right thing, then maybe you need that. But that representation is a phase that we all go through in the slides of our life. They're not fixed things. They're not complete, total, absolute truth. It's like in programming as well. The difference between absolute and relative. Absolute must mean that the thing itself is positioned absolutely in accordance to all possible things. It's like the total scaled-in vector point. But relative is something that you can apply to an object that can be related to other things. It changes based upon perception or its container. And um, I guess we're all trying to figure out what's absolute truth, what's relative truth. Where am I? What do I do? And uh, I think we're figuring it out. We're definitely figuring it out here at Real Designers. We're trying to just make interesting things for people to latch onto, get a little slice of a code, and move on. That's all we really can do is contribute our little commit to the worldwide database of consciousness. The shared learning experience. I think that's the new model is. I think the old model of being a specialist in just one thing and then teaching that thing endlessly in the same way for your entire career, I think that's out. I don't think that's going to work anymore. I really like the new model that people like us are engaged in, which is we teach what we're currently learning as we're learning it. And then we move on, update, evolve, continue, but we don't get stuck in one thing. There is... You know, that question of absolute truth and relative truth is a, you know, is a sticky question, but it, you know, the, I think we have, I think it helps us to accept that there is absolute truth. And then, you know, maybe it's beyond our ability to fully comprehend, but what makes, you know, what makes truth, the capital T truth versus the sort of new age, my truth, <laughs> I, I believe that anything that is absolute truth is self-evident which means it doesn't it doesn't really need explaining it might need pointing out because we can miss things that are right under our nose but it does have like there's a self-evident nature which to me is perfect because you know what is the absolute the absolute truth you know the biggest possible truth is all that exists <laughs> If it exists, it's true, right? So, well, where did existence come from? Or where did God come from? You know, we, we give God the attribute of self-existing, self-generated or self-existing. Well, if God is truth and God is self-existing, then truth must be self-evident as in it exists in and of itself without it needing to be sort of fabricated or explained or, or built up. It's just, it's there, there to see. So to me, those are the really fun moments, like in 
streams that I do with friends where we're getting into like synchro mystic super gravy portals where all of a sudden something jumps out at us that's been there the whole time, you know, self-evident, but we never noticed it before. Those are the biggest, most fun aha epiphany moments where you catch what's been right under your nose the whole time. There's always something new to find from old information. You always got to look at your code and be like, oh, two months ago I did it that way. That's dumb. You, you look at it like I could change it now with my newfound knowledge. And then that turns out to be the most optimized pattern for the time. Yearly goes by, you check back your code. Oh, that was dumb. I should do it this way now. And we're always adjusting what we view, adapting to our current knowledge levels. Yeah. Last night I got to do a, I guess you call it like a seminar or a teaching thing for, it was like a members only deal. So people had paid to get into this zoom call and I was invited to come teach for this group. And, uh, it had been a long time, maybe a year or more since I did a presentation on the biofield anatomy which like the, the structure of our energy field and what means what and where it's at. And I had a really good time reviewing that information because the last few times that I had done a presentation of that sort on the biofield and the anatomy of your aura, um, most of my information was coming from what I learned from other people in my training and research about it. I wouldn't, training's a strong word because I'm self-taught, but this time I was able to like go back into an old PowerPoint presentation, sort of rebuild it from the ground up, simplify, you know, remove stuff that was kind of like filler back then and add a bunch of insights that I gained from real world experience, you know, putting it to the test. And most ex like most exciting to me was redescribing all of the different parts of the biofield, like root chakra, solar plexus, crown, you know, the different meanings in the left, right, front, back, up, down of the energy field and being able to add in the stuff that I never could have learned in a book because it wasn't in the book, but I have, I've read it in the book of people's, of people's life story of how people express in their body and in their energy field. So I was able to add a lot of really great stuff to that because, you know, in the review process, like you know, an example I'll give. So you guys are, are hip to the biofield anatomy. It's like your six feet of bubble space has got specific information in it in terms of stuck energy that could express uh, through limiting beliefs, expectations, or stuck emotional energy. So one of those, like as an example, in the biofield anatomy book, right? Tuning the Human Biofield by Eileen McCusick, which is what I read to kick me off into practicing the method and, and testing it on people. Uh, what it says about the heart chakra is that the front right side of the heart chakra can hold stuck energy around difficulty with saying no and setting boundaries. But I've learned since then that what I, what I was previously looking for was just for problems with saying no. like. And that's all I would find. But then one day it occurred to me through what person I was working with that, oh, wait, what this person has stuck here is actually they've repressed the expression of something that they wanted, like they repressed an affirmative. You know, they, they didn't 
tell someone how they really felt about them. That, you know, they didn't express some kind of love or some kind of desire. So then I realized, okay, this actually, you know, it's not just about not being able to say no. It's just any kind of repression of expressing what your heart wants in, in any way could get stuck in this part of the heart chakra. All right, that makes sense. Or the left side of the root chakra was described to me when I read the book as if there's stuck energy there, it, it expresses it as the person is lazy or won't take action in the world. But, you know, what I've, what I've found in the reviewing of the code of the human energy field is that it's actually different from person to person. You know, the, the end result will be the same, that the stuck energy on the left hip will stop them from taking action in the world. But the reasons for it can vary dramatically. Like it could be a type of, it could be that they believe they're lazy, or it could be that they are, that they've taken on the belief that they're shy, or it could be that they are deathly afraid of being exposed in some way or being seen by others. And all of those are ways that they might not take certain actions in the world. So the end result is the same, but the reasons for it change. So there's just some examples of what I'm talking about of how like, yeah, reviewing your code regularly is important because, you know, you don't want to get stuck only realizing that all these things that are language based, whether it's computer code or something like the biofield anatomy or the literally the language that you speak to others with, they are real language is a living thing. You know, it, it should evolve over time. It does between inter, interpersonally from between people, how they communicate with each other. So don't get your, you know, don't get your system, um, stagnate, stagnated by thinking it can't be improved or bettered. All linguistic based systems can be, uh, streamlined, improved, expanded, etc. The more data you get as you progress in life, that allows you to uncover new layers um, that you wouldn't have seen before. And uh, you get that new data through uh, learning, growing, expanding your consciousness. And I also find it interesting how the how you're saying like the human body is like hardware and we're almost like these biological electric magnetism holographic beings that uh, exist in this reality and it's interesting how we can do these things to our bodies that are i don't want to say like hacks but like you can use the tuning forks and like remove stuck energy or you can like acupuncture like um poke yourself in certain spots and release a certain tension or release a certain motions or twist your body in certain ways and it's almost sort of like a video game with cheat codes when i think about it like that it kind of makes me think like it's not like a simulation but not a simulation when like you know these certain things kind of line up what we believe is going to create a reality and all these things just kind of layer upon each other um, i just find it very fascinating yeah man i love that uh, i love to expand on that so Simulation, to be precise with their language, simulation means hypocrisy, essentially. It's feigning to be that which you are not. So that's why I think simulation theory is so popular with hardcore scientific materialists, 
And there's actually such a thing as spiritual materialism as well. And that's what the, uh, you know, the pseudo Gnostic that's not really based on true knowledge of self reality It's based on these preconceived notions is actually a form of spiritual materialism. And, you know, when I, when I say that it's why simulation theory is so popular, I think with the materialist crowd, scientific or spiritual or otherwise is because they, <laughs> they are simulating in the sense that they are pretending to be that, which they're not. I mean, they're pretending that their mind or their consciousness is either trapped in or locked in their body or an expression or growth out of their body. Like that's what the biofield uh, anatomy and doing tunings with people has prove, proven to me. Although I didn't need it proven to me. I think I'd already kind of subjectively proven it to myself, but over and over again, it proves to me that your mind isn't in your body. Your body is in your mind. <laughs> All of it is in your mind. So, you know, simulating that you are just a body or that you're a spirit that's trapped in a body that that's uh that's a form of hypocrisy in a sense. And when we say that life is like a video game, I'm actually, I'm, I like that metaphor. I look, I don't think it's literally true in the sense of like, uh, you know, inside of a computer or something per se, yeah. but the reason why computers work or technology works is that it, it has to mimic something in nature. You know, you like look at a car. A car is like a body in a way. It's got a it's got a heart, it's got veins, you know. <laughs> Computers are like that. Even a city is like a type of uh organism in a way. It's got like energy comes in, waste goes out, it has circulation, all of that. So I do I actually pref more than life being a uh a test or a school, I actually think it, it feels more accurate to say it's like a game, you know, because you, you, you seek, you seek to get better at games. You seek to improve your standing in the game. You, you know, you seek to improve your skill in the game. All of that is true. But when it's a game that really takes some of the edge off of, uh, take some of the edge off of the whole situation. Like maybe it's not so serious after all, maybe life is for our enjoyment and it's for, you know, our growth in the sense that we get better at it. But I think that whatever, whatever we truly are, you know, if we're not simulating that we're just our body is the all knowing, all existing, self-evident, eternal energy that is the life force or the creative you know, impulse that, uh, that we call God, you know, not saying that we are in our egos, God, but that which animates us is not separate from, you know, that which created everything that's animated. So in that sense, there's in the big, the biggest version of us or like, you know, I look at God as the, uh, the tree of life and what we experience here as people are, the the leaves or branches of that tree but at our, you know at our roots or our, our most original essence there's nothing to gain there's nothing to lose how can you take away from something that is everything you know how can you give something to something that is everything so take some of the edge off and realize like don't worry about fucking up what fucks you up the most is thinking you're fucking up 
I'm not saying to be, you know, to do evil in the world or do unto others, you know, things that you wouldn't have done unto yourself. That clearly has backlash and it's not going to, you're not going to enjoy that. So, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. There is a, there is a type of morality built into this place in the sense of the reflectivity of the inner outer world experience. But I do think the game metaphor is better because, you know, at the end of the day, when you finish playing a game, whether it's a Scrabble or (laughs) World of Warcraft or something, when you get up from that game, who you are outside of the game hasn't really shifted. You know, maybe, maybe experiences have changed or your mood has changed in a sense, but who you are, like if the physical body, unless you've like gained some weight, <laughs> but even that's a temporary change. So who you are outside of the game is, I think beyond, uh, I don't think that we need to worry about like, did I mess up this life or did I learn my lessons? You know, that kind of puts like this pressure on us. And when, um, someone tells you, you got to do something, don't you kind of just not want to do that? <laughs> And I, we can grow and get better. Yes, that's part of uh, the game itself. But I, yeah, I like reality as a game. To me, that's uh, an empowering way to look at it. And you know, leveling up all the role-playing game tropes and elements, that is all great. There's something about the epiphany that is energetic. Like there's certain levels of comprehension of of the structure of reality that are only accessible when you have enough charge in your battery or your body. And then the other thing is there's certain elements of certain, certain things about expansion in life that no one can teach you, no matter how hard you search, like there's certain keys that just cannot be given. They have to be found within, right? Like when I first started Interverse, when I, I was like asking everybody, I was looking for the person who could Tell me how to do it. Tell me how to break free of the job that I feel like a slave in doing what I don't want. And tell me how to, what's the, what's the way to live based on, you know, get my income based on what I'm actually passionate about and feel aligned with in my soul. And nobody could tell me to do that, how to, or how to do that. Once I took the leap of faith necessary to myself for the, uh, to do that, you know, and when I found it in myself to have the belief factor, I guess, that I could survive that way and not be scared uh, of the unknown element of not being sure like when your next, you know, money is going to come in or how much it's going to be or how that bill is going to get paid. Well, once I'd done that leap of faith at that point, then people could actually you know, I could talk to, I could talk to my guests about that type of thing and actually get somewhere, actually share something useful. So there's like, there's certain elements of epiphany. First of all, you have to be energetically charged enough to approach them. And you might even like, if you dip in energy, forget stuff that you, that you thought was like super locked in. And when you next get your energy back into a healthy, coherent state, high level state, uh, all of a sudden, the epiphany will pop back in and you'll be like, how did I ever forget that? How did I ever forget that that's how life works or that's how I want to behave or, or whatever the case may be? So, you know, that being said, I'm happy. And I think I think the my external world 
uh, is able to receive that which I'm able to find within myself. And so I can, you know, there's definitely some things I could communicate to your audience that uh, in, in a, a cool programmed format, you know, maybe there's a way to gamify or, or systematize or, you know, through a, some cool GPU or a, what do you call it? Gra graphic user interface GUI. <laughs> to teach about the, the anatomy of their aura. I think that could be really cool. So maybe we should be in touch about that after the, uh, the cast or through email, but you know, cause I'm imagining, I'm imagining just some sort of interface where you could click on different parts of a person's body or different colors in their arc field and get uh, a little pop-up or graphic of, the information that might be in that part of their energy field or like a 3d model, uh, that you could spin around and they would have like floating color points that could be clicked on. And you click on like the, uh, you know, the front left of the solar plexus. And it's like, it's got some, I don't know. I would even maybe put it in the form of like affirmations, the not self affirmation of the left side of the solar plexus is I can't or any form of powerlessness of some kind. And then the, you know, the, the true self expression of that part of the solar plexus is I can, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I, you know, we could maybe even, it could be more detailed than that, but it could be really cool to help people see. <laughs> maybe they, they just click on the, the 3d man in the, on the screen and they're like, okay, my left knee hurts. I click on the left knee and it's like, Ask yourself, where in life are you struggling to let go of something? That's what your left knee is hurting for. <laughs> you know, that would be, that that is definitely like a reality designer's level hack, in a sense, to understand the game. Because the, 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 the tricky part about the human life game is that you don't get a user manual when you get in here. And lots of people have tried to write the manual. And they... <laughs> I think that's what the scriptures were maybe originally supposed to be. Uh, and it was more based on that whole like zodiacal year of our Lord, uh, psychodrama of the creator. But the, you know, like what about the body itself? A lot of the scriptures are there almost like a user manual for the world. So it's kind of external based. But what about your physical body, this vehicle? How does it talk to you? You know, and that's what needs to be broken out of by all of us, the ways that we ignore the messages from our body because we, uh, we forget or we pretend that it's just some, it's just a meaningless occurrence. You know, that gurgle in my stomach doesn't mean anything. It just happened or, you know, that sore spot or that scratch or whatever. None of it is meaningless. Everything has some kind of meaning. Everything is a message. And especially stuff going on with your body because the body is the shadow of the spirit or it's the, uh, you know, it's like the spirit made physical. If I could describe what I think the body is, I would look at it like your soul or your essence or your spirit, all these words that kind of get thrown around interchangeably, but your, your deepest, most original aspects, you could see that as a seed. Okay. And so think of a tree tree comes from a seed, right? It might be a infinitesimally tiny seed. And one day that goes into the ground 
and you come back 50 years later and you have a 30 foot tree. It's humongous or 200 years later, you know, and it's gigantic it's enormous, but where's the seed? Where's the seed that it started out as it's nowhere. It's not there. It's the whole tree. So I think that that's like, you know, I think that's what our body is. I think our, the seed is our, our true essence or our, you know, our spirit or our soul. But where does that go? It becomes the whole body. It's the whole thing, you know, until the point where that body can no longer house that, that mental or that, uh, that life force energy, in which case it returns to the form it was before, sort of like in a tree's life cycle. It will put off some some more seeds, something like that. That's kind of maybe the metaphor falls apart at a, at a certain point, but that's kind of how I see what the body is, which means it's very, you know, the body is very relevant to your spiritual experience, which is the opposite of what of a lot of the uh, the world has fallen, the world is broken or run by the devil. Your body is dirty, naughty, naughty all of that type of religious mumbo jumbo, but like, no, your body is like your direct interface to your spirit. It's your, like, that's the question that most people get into quote unquote spirituality for is like, what do I actually want? Who am I? And unfortunately, a lot of the religious traditions will be like, well, I'll tell you right now, you're not your body. Well, I, f- I feel like I'm my body. <laughs> I feel like the, the intelligence or the awareness of um, my consciousness is distributed throughout this entire thing. You know, consciousness means feeling. Well, I can feel in my fingertip. I can feel down in my toe, the back of my head. So, you know, if I am my consciousness, if that if that's my I am, it's my deepest thing. Well, why does it, uh, you know, why does it extend through every single infinitesimal fiber and and at part of this physical body. So that's what I think. I think your body is a, a ma- microcosm of the entire reality. You know, it's like, fra- uh, it's a fractal. It's the, so in that sense, like your body is the whole thing, man. And uh, so treat it, treat it like you want it, <laughs> treat it like you love it. <laughs> treat it like it's good. You know, that's one thing you asked about is waking up the normies or the sheeple. And, you know, that, I don't know about all that, but I do know that people do wake up and when they wake up, they're like, where's the map? Yeah. <laughs> where's the map? How do I, and then, you know, if they, if they're anything like most of us, they wind up on a lot of detours. They trudge through the swamp of sorrows. Their trusty steed gets sucked into the muck and they lose it. And, you know, it's very sad. And then they got to fight the Baba Yaga and all kinds of monsters come out or, but maybe, you know, if we like your, your web here of, of ideas, if that kind of a concept 3d idea web could be applied to things that people might be wondering about just in a topical list of what you would call conspiracy information, we might save people a lot of trouble, (laughs) you know, like, Here's the stuff that's pertinent to know about this topic. And uh, here's the stuff to avoid because it's a detour to the Swamp of Sorrows. You know, that's uh, the map is still yet to be written. The manual for the human experience yet to be written. And 
I'm happy to be a part of any kind of project that it, that nobly attempts to guide people away from the pitfalls that a lot of us may have fallen into when we were realizing that deferring our authority to the uh the gang the gangs <laughs> the gangs of earth is not working out. Well, we're the best ones to write the map because we fell for all the tricks and then we came out. We're like, whoa, half of that's totally irrelevant. You just don't need to do that. Or maybe you do, but I don't think you do. You know? We'll see. I think after Cooties, a lot of people were, uh, a lot of people got to jump into, you know, I look at like human collective consciousness, like a, a series of, tunnels in a mine the mine the mines of the mind and what made me start thinking this way is how i used to go to a lot of music festivals and when i first started going to them you might see a couple of girls with a hula hoop and they're pretty good you know i was like wow there's some good hula hoop and i didn't know you could do that all my experience of hula hooping was like pe class in elementary school no, no tricks at all, just barely keeping it going. And then a few years p- passed and I look around. I'm like, wow, there's a lot more girls hula hooping. And they're, they're very good at it. A few more years pass. And like the things the girls were doing with hula hoops would blow your mind. Like that, you wouldn't even have thought that was possible. And part of that was obviously there's new people starting to pick up the hula hoop. But the new people that started, they were like jumping up to the front of the queue with the people that have been doing it for years in a short matter of time, practice wise. It's kind of like that idea of uh, once somebody runs a mile in, in four minutes, lots of people can do it. But before that, it was impossible. So I look at things in terms of the human, you know, human neural pathways that we might carve out in the practicing of certain skills that. Really, those neural pathways, if other people have been doing that thing, then that neural pathway is more like, for you, uh, a pr- like a perforated piece of paper. So instead of having to try to find where the line is, there's already a perforation there. So you're just like, okay, this is going really easily up until the point where you get to the cutting edge of whatever that experience is. So like everyone that is a reality designer... <laughs> or doing like the type of research that I'm interested in or or what have you, even if we're not in direct communication with each other, we're all chipping away at the same wall in the neural pathway of the collective consciousness in that particular reality tunnel or skilled perforation of the the big piece of paper, right? So in that sense, uh, a lot of people were able to, like during cooties, to just jump right ahead to the uh, right to the wall that the rest of us were at, you know what I mean? Instead of, well, I shouldn't say they don't instantly teleport there, but for us, like we've been chipping away at that wall to make some progress over years. Whereas all the progress we've made, the new people get to just walk, walk through that or jog through that leisurely without a wall there. But you know, then they catch up to where the wall's at and we're all chipping at the way, the wall together. That's how I see, um, the collective consciousness that's, you know, that all makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's like a path in a computer, you know? 
you got to scan around. Where's, where's my file? Where'd I save that video? And you check every folder. And once you got it, you can just copy the link. Be like, oh, all my files are saved in desktop slash do, 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 do. There's the absolute path of where it is. And we're all chipping away and creating those mind lines. That's what these things are going to be called in the 3D spaces. They're going to be mind lines. Things which you can travel to to get to the end point of where it exists. Cool. Especially excited about the potential of building a interactive biofield anatomy teaching tool. That could be so awesome. That doesn't exist in the world yet. You know, like be such a helpful way for people to get it. I'd really love that. So let's definitely talk about it.